Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Amen. You can have a seat. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Acts chapter 13 today, so you can open up there and I'll just go ahead and let you know, as you're already hearing, there's going to be the distraction of power washing going on in the distance. Um, So it seems like that happens at least either once a quarter, or I don't know if we've actually figured out how often they they clean up there, but um, so yeah, I'll be competing with the the power washing sounds. Um, But it's fine. Acts chapter 13 is where we're at. Uh, We are continuing in our Acts series. Um, So if you are new with us, uh, we are walking through the book of Acts uh, verse by verse. And Josh uh, led us back into that last week when he covered uh, verses 1 through 12 in Acts chapter 13. Um, And I will be jumping into um, Acts 13, 13 through 52. So we do have a lot of uh, verses to cover today, and, and in all honesty, today is going to be uh, just a lot of Scripture, um, and so we're going to be reading through a lot of Scripture, and so if you have um, a history in church, um, then a lot of this is going to be kind of a refresher for you. Um, if you don't have a history in church and you don't know how kind of the Old Testament ties into the New Testament, then today is going to be simply that, just tying in what was taught in the Old Testament of how God uh, orchestrated the relationships that were in place, the, the peoples that were in place, and how that ultimately led to Jesus Christ, and then uh, Christ coming, and how then that ultimately leads to us being here today. And so uh, we're going to be kind of, again, overview looking at that entire, entire passage. So uh, I want to pray again as we as we dive in and open up this word today. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, we know that your word holds authority. We know that your word is inerrant. We know that your word pierces our hearts. It gets down into the depths of who we are and our identity. And your word is able to speak into our lives, to be able to speak into our identity to be able to speak into our souls, to begin to allow us to understand ourselves greater, to be able to understand you greater. And as we understand both of those things, we are then able to understand how to live within your design, to be able to say no to the things in our own lives that lead us away from you and to be able to say yes to the things that draw us towards you. And so, Father, as we read your word today, let our faith be strengthened. Let our understanding grow. And let us just receive grace from you as we read your word, as we study your word, as we meditate on your word. So, Holy Spirit, reveal Christ to us this morning. Make him look so good that we are willing to put off the old self, that we are willing to say no to the areas of sin that we still struggle with, and that we're able to say yes to Jesus. 
that he becomes the ultimate object of our affection and our worship. And that we would honor him with our lives as we are growing to become more and more like him. So Spirit, we pray that you would do that amongst us right now. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Acts 13, beginning in verse 13. I'm actually, I'm going to read 13 through 52. um, And then we will kind of divide it into three categories. So 13 through 52, here we go. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them to re- and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel... And you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his, his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. 
But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So for the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. And they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So there's a lot. In this text. And what we're going to look at is, is really three things. The first thing that we want to look at is the fact that the gospel is preached. The gospel's preached. So we have here Paul and Barnabas entering into a city called Antioch. And this is different from the Antioch that we looked at um, a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 13, where the center of operations of Christianity has now shifted from Jerusalem to Antioch. So as persecution happened in Jerusalem and as the disciples, as the apostles, as the believers were all scattered across the region, the center of operations has now shifted to Antioch, but this is kind of a different Antioch. So this is another one that, again, is a leading city within its region. It's a metropolitan city, and so they find themselves here, and, and as a part of their customs, anytime they go into a city to spread the gospel, they always enter into the synagogue first. Because, again, Paul being a Jew himself, Barnabas being a Jew, different types of Jews, but they're both Jewish, always enter into the gospel going to the Jews first and then to the Greeks or the Gentiles second. And so they want to enter into the synagogue and they want to sit down and they actually sit under the reading of the law and the prophets. So they sit under the worship gathering of the Jews within their context of Antioch here. And then because there is a reputation of Paul and Barnabas, there's the leading Jews of the synagogue. They actually send message to Paul and Barnabas and they say, hey, we, we want you to get up and we want you to share a word with us. 
These are God-fearing people. These are people who want to hear from God. And so if they hear of someone who, who potentially has a word from the Lord, they want to be able to hear that. And so Paul and Barnabas, after listening to the law and the prophets being read in this worship gathering, are now going up to share with the people in the gathering what God has revealed to them. And what I love that they do is they don't come in immediately preaching Jesus Christ. But rather, they contextualize the message of Jesus Christ to the audience that they are speaking to, Jews. And so what they start out with is knowing the narrative of God's story, knowing the narrative of the Bible. So when we talk about going out and sharing the gospel... We want you to not only just study the gospel and what it is, but also study the context, the audience in which we are preaching and proclaiming the gospel to. And that's exactly what Paul does here. He starts laying out for them essentially their Old Testament. They just read from the law and the prophets, which is, is just a summary statement of the Old Testament. And now he is beginning to unpack how... That Old Testament leads to the Jesus Christ that they are about to preach and proclaim. The one that they are saying, all that we follow, all that we are holding to from custom and rituals, all that we are placing our hope in from the sacrifices and the rituals of Judaism, all of those things are fulfilled in a person. And we want to show you that. So they literally begin with this idea of, in verse 17, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers. So this is a phrase that you hear often amongst the people of Israel, amongst the Israelites, is the God of our fathers. So Paul, again, is contextualizing this, and I want you to kind of see who he's referring to here. And so this is going to be kind of a, a Bible drill for us. I want us to look at the Old Testament storyline of, of who God chose to put in place in order to bring about a people that then ultimately leads to the lineage of Jesus Christ. So Genesis chapter 12, verse 17 in Acts 13 is covering the history of the Israelites from Genesis 12 all the way through the end of Exodus. So Genesis 12, 1 through 7 is the first father that Paul is bringing up in this text. And so I'm going to read it for you. It might be up on the screen, is it, Josh? Okay. Uh, Genesis 12, 1 through 7. This is the call of Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they, had, that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At the time the Canaanites were in the land, or at that time the Canaanites were in the land. 
Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now this is the first calling of Abram, who later will have his name changed to Abraham. And Abraham is, is the, literally the first father of the Israelite nation. Now God has just promised to Abram that he is going to bless him with offspring. And that through his offspring, he's then going to bless all of the nations. So we have right here, not only is God promising that he's going to create a nation, but through that nation, there is going to come an offspring of Abraham that is ultimately going to then be a blessing for all nations. So immediately within the founding documents of the Israelites, you have something that should lead them to love all nations. But yet they don't. They only love their nation. This is why you have all of the racism going on within the first century of Jerusalem. The fact that, that how much they hate the Samaritans, which are the half-breed Jews. And then, absolutely, I mean, they don't even consider Gentiles or anybody who's not Jew. They don't even consider them people. They hate them so much. But yet, in their own founding documents, you have God promising to them that he's going to bless all nations through them. We also know that this promise was given to Abraham, but Abraham never saw the promise. Abram never saw the great nation that was going to be made. Abraham never saw the multitude of offspring that God had promised to him. And that's something very important for us because as we see here, as Paul continues to kind of lay this out for us, he says in verse 20, all of this took about 450 years. So from the call of Abram to then Abram having a son named Isaac, and then Isaac having a son named Jacob, and then Jacob having 12 sons, those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. They become the nation of Israel. And then they go through an entire history of, of bickering and, and having division within amongst themselves. And it gets divided into two regions between North Israel, Judah, and Israel. And then ultimately you end up from there having these, within the tribes, you start to have lineages as far as roles and offices. And so you have the Levites and you have the tribe of Benjamin. You have the tribe of Judah, which ultimately Christ comes from. You have all these different regions and then this entire nation of Israel, again, who's still promised this promised land, which is Canaan, which is modern day for us, Israel, never actually get into it before they are all dispersed over the entire world. And ultimately then enslaved and captured into Egypt. And in Egypt, it says that they are made a great nation. Now, it doesn't mean great in the sense of power and authority, but literally just a multitude. There are a ton of people, so much so that there are more Israelites in Egypt than there are Egyptians. However, the Egyptians have them completely in enslavement. And so then he leads us up to Moses. Moses being a Jew who was raised by the Egyptians, who God then calls out. And as he calls out Moses, he tells him, and this is in Moses, or in Moses chapter 3. This is in Exodus chapter 3. 
verses 1 through 17, I want to read the end of this 450 years from Abram to Moses, verses 1 through 17. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the, Pez the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers, hear the language there, same language that Paul is using, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to this people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and the land flowing with milk and honey. So we have in this passage the call of Moses. And also love in the call of Moses at the beginning of it. You have God telling Moses, I've seen the suffering of my people, and I'm going to lead them out. I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to bring them out. If I'm Moses on this mountain in a conversation with God and God is telling me he's going to do something, I'm immediately going to ask the question, why am I here? If you're going to do this, if you're going to accomplish this, then, then why am I here? Why do you need me? What does this involve of me? I'm going to sit back, grab some popcorn and watch you do your thing, which is ironic because I don't like popcorn. But anyways, 
I'm going to watch you do your thing and I'm going to marvel at you accomplishing this. But one of the ways that God works is anytime that he wants to move, anytime that he wants to flex, anytime that he wants to do something that causes people to marvel, he always grabs somebody. He grabs somebody and uses them as what we call a viceroy. He uses them as an ambassador. He uses them as a messenger. He uses them as a tool in order to accomplish his will. And oftentimes, he grabs somebody that we would not hire. He grabs somebody that we would not recognize as somebody that would do the job. He grabs somebody who would typically be the least of these. For example, as Paul is laying out the history of the people in this synagogue, and he's talking about your fathers, and he's talking about how there was the fathers, the Abraham, the Isaac, the Jacob, and then there were the tribes, and then the tribes wanted judges, and then God established judges for them, and they were like, you know what, judges aren't enough, we need a king, and then he's like, okay, I'm going to give you a king, and he gives them Saul, and Saul reigns for 40 years, and, and Saul was who people would consider kingly. He stood a foot taller than anybody else that was around him. He had prominence. He had prestige. He had authority. People revered him. And this was all before he was established as king. He fit the bill of what a king would be. But ultimately, that did not qualify him to be king. As we know, he ultimately finds himself when Israel needs him the most, he's hiding. He's hiding. And so what does God do? God, still giving them a king, removes Saul, and he goes and finds one that the people would not have chosen themselves. Even when he goes to Jesse, Jesse's like, sees an opportunity. Jesse's like, I'm, if, if my family gets to have a king, then I'm going to send all my best sons. So he sends all of his best sons into the battle. And this is the battle between the Israelites and the Philistines. And they're trying to figure out who's going to win. And ultimately, Goliath is coming out. And every single day as Goliath is coming out, he's taunting the Israelites. And literally, all they have to do is just find one person who's able to kill Goliath. And if they find one person to kill Goliath, then the Philistines will, will surrender. And so day and night, day and night, they keep coming out. And Goliath comes and he chants out what he wants to chant out and he basically challenges the Israelites send somebody but he keeps taunting them and nobody volunteers from the Israelite side and finally you have this shepherd boy David who comes to the battle but he comes to the battle actually not to go into battle rather he's just coming to, to give a word to his brothers from his father Jesse he's also bringing um, materials for them. He's bringing bread. He's bringing weapons. He's, he's bringing materials for them. He's, he's essentially the help. And as he's there giving word to them, he hears Goliath in the distance taunting. And David, I love David. This little shepherd boy, small in stature, empowered by God, looks at Goliath and says, who does he think he is? Taunting the army of God. Who does he think he is 
coming against God. And so David's like, I, just give me some rocks, give me a slingshot, I'm going to go kill this man. And David does. And God empowering David lifts up someone who's considered the least of these to then be their king. And David rules and reigns as their king. And one of the things I love about this is David isn't first and foremost seeking the position, but God is seeking his heart. It says God looked among all the people of Israel and found one who was after his own heart. Now, was David perfect? No, David was not perfect. You know any history about David? You know that he deals with a little bit of lust to the point that when he is ruling and reigning as king and people are off to battle, he's kind of taking a day off from work. He's taking a personal day, a sick day. Usually he's out at war. He's just out hanging out at his house and sees a woman bathing next door on the roof, and he jumps right in. Commits adultery, has her husband murdered. But yet this is a man after God's own heart. So one of the things that qualifies us to be believers is not our actions. It's not how much good we do versus how bad we do. What qualifies us to be believers is God giving us a heart. God empowering us with his identity to be able to be people who then can pursue him. It's exactly what he's done with David. You can read that in Ezekiel 32 where God talks about, I will remove the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh so that they will be my people and I will be their God and they will not turn away from doing good. They will not turn away from me. God gives us that heart that is able to run to him and pursue him in all of life. And this is our David. And from David comes the lineage as Paul begins to share and unpack comes Jesus. But before he even gets to Jesus, he also brings up this random guy named John. Because again, it's important that they know their story. It's important that they know their context. It's important that they know their history. That for 450 years, from, from Abram to Moses, you have God working and orchestrating his people, even in their own rebellion. I mean, these are people that, as they're brought out of Egypt, literally walk through the Red Sea, and within months are turning away from God and creating a golden calf that they're going to start worshiping because now they no longer trust God. Like, do you not remember that he just parted an ocean, like a sea that you just walked through on dry ground? Be, I mean, literally, us seeing that happen on New Year's Day and then today choosing to not trust God anymore and rather try to fabricate a religion that we are then going to follow and place our hope in. This is the stiff-necked, rebellious people that is so often talked about in Scripture. 
So the 450 years then leads into 1,000 years before Jesus. 1,500 years span from Moses writing the Deuteron- like writing our Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. 1,500 years span from there to then John the Baptist breaking the silence. From the last book of Malachi to the first book of Matthew, we have over 400 years of silence where God did not speak to the people. He did not act. He did not speak. There are no miracles. 400 years. And I'm bringing up all these years because this is their story. And in their story demands a lot of patience. Patience that's not just in your own life, but patience that you need to be praying for your great-grandchildren. Because God might not answer your prayer today for your life until your great-grandchildren. But the invitation for us is to not only pray for our own lives, but to pray for our own legacies. Because even though God did not speak to them for 400 years, they were still sharing their story. To the point that John the Baptist, called by God, drawn by God, appointed by God, to quote-unquote prepare the way for Jesus, is telling the people everything that's been promised to us In the Old Testament, everything that's been promised to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the blessing that was going to come from their offspring that would then bless all nations, he's here. Don't miss him. That's literally the ministry of John the Baptist is calling people to turn away from whatever it is that you are placing hope and trust in and turn to Jesus because God is now bringing all of our history, all of our story. It's going to hinge on this one man, Jesus Christ. Don't miss him. And John the Baptist was so successful in his ministry of preaching and baptizing people that they thought he was the Messiah. They thought he was the one that was promised of old. They thought he was the one that was going to be fulfilling all of the scriptures in their entirety. And I love what John the Baptist said in response. What do you suppose that I am in verse 25? I am not he. But behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Now this is John the Baptist saying to the people, I'm not worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. You know what Jesus says of John the Baptist? In Luke chapter 2, Jesus says of John the Baptist, There is no one greater born of woman than John the Baptist. No one greater in all of history, born of woman. So we're trying to think, like, is there anyone else that's not born of woman? Like, no, no. Everyone born of woman, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus says that, and Jesus never lies. So John the Baptist is a legit dude. He's awesome. You think you're awesome? You're not John the Baptist status. 
He's awesome. But the ministry and the story that John the Baptist knows and treasures so much has created within him so much humility that even being the greatest person to ever live apart from Jesus considers himself unworthy to even untie Jesus' sandals. I love that. I love that because that should challenge us in the sense of how we think about ourselves. And I'm not saying that we should, um, that we should like have this self-fulfilling prophecy that we should be these lowly worms or that we are just terrible people. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that we should guard ourselves from thinking that any type of status or privilege or position or office makes us worthy to do the ministry of Jesus. To untie his sandals, as John the Baptist says. The more we see Jesus and the more we understand Jesus, it produces within us humility. Humility. That I'm willing to... Not think less of myself, but think of myself less. That I'm viewing others as mission, as love, as encouragement. I want to exhaust myself in order for them to know this story, this history of God redeeming and reconciling the world back to a relationship with Him. I mean, John the Baptist was sold out for this to the point that literally his ministry was out in the wilderness. Like He didn't have a loft downtown. He didn't have a 401k. He wasn't going to retire in wealth. He wasn't going to write a few books. Like John the Baptist doesn't have a book. He's the greatest person, yet he doesn't have a book. Rather, he's out eating curds and insects. Abstains from alcohol. Commanded by God. Like he doesn't get to enjoy a lot of privilege. When you look at the end of his life, the greatest man who ever lived, apart from Jesus, gets his head chopped off because of a little stripper girl. He was imprisoned. By Herod the Tetrarch. Being imprisoned, he comes to him and he says, you're going to be beheaded. John the Baptist being imprisoned, I love this story. John the Baptist kind of, and again, for those that don't know, he's the cousin of Jesus. Six months difference between their age. Cousin of Jesus. Begins to question whether or not Jesus is actually legit. John the Baptist takes some of his disciples and sends them off to Jesus and says, Hey, go talk to Jesus and, and figure out what's going on because this is going bad for me. They're about to throw a party. There's going to be this girl who does a dance for the, for the king. And then she's going to ultimately, the king's going to give her whatever she wants. And what she ultimately wants is my head on a platter. Is there, does Jesus have anything else for me? 
because I've devoted my entire life to him. And Jesus sends word back to John the Baptist, and this is what he says. It's, an, it's actually in a passage from Isaiah. And he tells him, the blind will see, the lame will walk, and the poor will be ministered to. But he leaves off the last part of the Isaiah benediction, which is the captives will go free. John the Baptist knows his Old Testament. He's probably asking his disciples, are you sure you didn't miss the last part of that? And what Jesus is ultimately saying is, no, even though you're considered the greatest person to ever live, your ministry is going to end by you being beheaded for my name's sake. I mean, we don't, we don't preach that. Follow Jesus. Get your head cut off. No, typically churches preach, follow Jesus and your life will be fantastic. Follow Jesus and all of your bills will be paid. Follow Jesus and you'll get a nice car. You'll get a nice gal. You'll get a nice family. You'll get a nice whatever. Follow Jesus and you get the American dream. It's just not true. It's not true. Follow Jesus, you get joy. Follow Jesus, you get peace. Follow Jesus, you get satisfaction. Follow Jesus, you get life and life abundantly. Follow Jesus, you get forgiveness of sins. Follow Jesus, you get a clear conscience. Follow Jesus, you get holiness. You get righteousness. Follow Jesus, you get love, and you get joy, and you get peace, and you get patience, and you get kindness, and you get goodness, and you get gentleness, and you get faithfulness, and you get self-control. Follow Jesus. Those are the intangible things that you receive that have nothing to do with the tangible things that we receive in this world or the circumstances that we get to experience in this world. Rather, it provides for you an anchor regardless of circumstances. So when things fall apart around you, I'm able to be patient. I'm able to trust because I've seen God be faithful, maybe not in my life, but I've seen God be faithful through our fathers, Abraham, who he promised a son to a woman who was barren and old. And like how old, like scripture says she was dried up old. That's awkward. <laughs> but she was old. And God gave, how long did it take God to give Abraham and Sarah a son that he promised? 25 years. And that was when he was 75 so it wasn't until he was 99 and 100 years old that God finally provided for them a son. Now think about that. When we pray, we're asking God to do something, and he's calling us to be patient. We're thinking, I'll be patient till Tuesday. But God, you better show up on Tuesday because I really need this to happen. We don't think through patience in God's timing, we think through patience in, God, I'm not going to throw a fit until this day or this time. I need you to show up then. We try to put him on our time rather than his time. So I'm asking the Lord to promote within us, to produce within us patience that he's produced in them that took 450 years to see 
the promised land actually happened. And when we talk about the promised land, who did the majority of the work? Who put up with the Israelites for 40 years wandering around in a wilderness when you actually think about it, was just around the corner was the promised land. They literally circled around the same desert for 40 years when all they had to do was just take a left and just try out a different way, stop complaining, go left, there's the promised land. But Moses had to put up with the Israelites for 40 years leading a stiff-necked and rebellious people constantly having to pray to God when God would say, I'm tired of them. I'm going to just wipe them out right now. And, and Moses is like, Lord, you've said in the past that you're going to bless them, that you're going to lead them to the promised land. So you need to, I mean, you, you swore by yourself that you were going to do this. So you need to, you need to complete your word. And God would respond, you're right. I will lead them there. But guess what? Moses, unfortunately, never gets to actually go into the promised land. God takes him up on the mountain and says, look, there it is. Thank you. Finally, let's go. In the literal, let's go, not in the millennial, let's go. But he finally gets them up there and he sees the promised land. And God says, yep, I'm going to take all the people there. But guess what, Moses? This is the end of the road for you. Literally, my entire ministry has been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years trying to herd these grumbling, stiff-necked, rebellious people. I get to see the promised land, but I don't get to go into the promised land. God says, yep. And people are going to trust me rather than a man. And then he kills them. One of the things I also love about God taking out Moses in that moment was he hid him. Like God's the one who like did the burial of Moses, hid him so that like no one knows where Moses is. Even the devil, there's a scripture passage where the devil's like trying to work out this deal with God to try to find the body of Moses and God's like, yeah, you're never going to find it. I really have no idea what that point has to do with anything. I just thought it was always an interesting thing. We don't know where Moses is. But I think there's more to that in the sense of, yes, we remember our fathers. We remember the patriarchs of, of the lineage that got us to Jesus. But we are to not worship them we are to see them as mere tools that God has used to display his faithfulness that produces within us, we can trust you. We can trust you because we see you in action here. We see you working. So Paul preaches this message to these people, their own history. And the last two things is that he gives them an opportunity to respond. He preaches them. He tells them ultimately this good news that has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ, whom your people, and this is kind of a shift in the message here. If you remember Peter back in early Acts, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, when he's preaching the first sermons to the, to the people, he's telling them, I mean, he does not hold back. It's, it is not a seeker-friendly sermon. He's saying, yeah, uh, Jesus, you all murdered. 
Um, so let's now do the invitation. Let's get the music going. Like, like he's telling them, you're all murderers. Paul kind of now takes a different shift because he's so removed from Jerusalem that even though these are still Jews, he's saying, your people ultimately murdered him. Your people killed him. Even though they found no warrant for death, no warrant for, to, to actually have him be guilty, they still called for his ultimate execution. Which is crazy to me that it actually happened. I mean, even Pilate, as they're going to Pilate, Pilate's conscience is like, I, I feel wrong about this. I, I don't feel like we should kill this guy. I feel like we should hear this out. Like, you have no warrant. You have, you have no reason for why he should have the death penalty. But because they were so adamant against Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate's like, either crucify him or they're going to come and crucify me. And he washes his hand of it and he turns Jesus over to the Jews and they ultimately kill him. So Paul's telling these people, you, the Jews, we killed Jesus. But Jesus, going to the cross and you actually killing him, has actually fulfilled your own story. Your own scripture, your own lineage, everything that you trust in, everything that points to a sacrifice you actually confirmed. The thing I love about that is that just displays for us the sovereignty of God that nothing can thwart what God is ultimately going to execute. Scripture was fulfilled not only in Jesus' coming, but also in their own rebellion. All the prophecies of God were fulfilled. And so now he's telling them, beware, verse 40, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. He's trying to plead with them. He says, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if someone tells you. He's saying, I'm telling you, and you're not going to believe me, but if God, like, please just try to believe me. Consider what I'm proclaiming to you. Paul loves his people. He loves his people so much that at one point he was talking about the fact that he would be willing to be cut off from Christ if that meant that his own people, the Jews, would be grafted into Christ. Like, I love people. But man, I don't know that I could say that. That I would be willing to go to hell for someone else to go to heaven? That's just, that's just hard for me to grasp. But that's Paul's heart. And that's his heart for his own people. Please consider what I'm offering you right now forgiveness of sins forgiveness of our sins as a people who murdered Jesus clear conscience he says in verse 46 it was necessary that the word of God first be spoken to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life behold we are now turning to the Gentiles so there's there's always two responses to the proclaiming of the gospel, us preaching the gospel. People will either reject it 
or they will receive it. There is no indifference to the gospel. There is no sharing of the gospel with someone and in them a posture of, oh, that's great for you. That's awesome. Love that you believe that. They haven't actually heard the gospel then, if that's their posture. Because what the gospel proclaims is a bittersweet narrative. Hey, uh, you're a sinner, and because you're a sinner, your sin killed Jesus. Therefore, you're a murderer. Um, you also lie. You're a liar. You also covet. You have envy. You have hatred in your heart. Hatred in your heart also means you're a murderer. You've done a lot of bad things. And even the good things that you try to do, as Isaiah says, are, are considered filthy rags compared to Christ's righteousness. So regardless of your bad or your good, you're not going to make the cut. You're a sinner. Sinners deserve hell. Eternal death. Romans 3 is very clear with that. There is no one righteous, not one. No one seeks God. No one pursues Him. No one longs for Him. No one is indifferent towards Him. You either love Him or you hate Him. And Romans 6, 23 says, because of that, the wages of our sin, the response of our sin, the penalty of our sin, what we are due, what we owe, is death. Complete death. Eternal death. And what he's offering him here is that when we proclaim the message, you either reject this forgiveness of sins and you will continue down the path of destruction. You will continue down the path of you think you have a way that Proverbs says will lead you to destruction. Or we receive the gospel. And we trust that Christ is who he says he is. And that he does offer forgiveness to those who realize that we are sinners. That we have sinned primarily, first and foremost, against God, and then secondarily against man. And he's now reconciling us into relationship with him and reconciling us into relationship with others. That through, as he talks about here in the, in the sermon, that through the life and the death and the, this is the most important part, resurrection of Jesus Christ, we also are able to participate in the death of Christ by putting our old life to death and then being raised to a new life with Him. We put to death the identity of our sinful nature that we were born with. And we are then raised to a new identity with Christ that is producing in us everything that I talked about in the beginning. Love, joy, peace, patience. A non-believer can mimic those things, but they do not flow from their identity. We can pretend those things. You can go on benevolent talk shows and everybody gets a car and everybody gets this and that. And those are good things. 
But those are mimicked after God's heart. Only God's heart is truly seen in a believer who is made new. Who receives the gospel. Receives the finished work of Jesus Christ. The Jews here rejected it. And then it says the Gentiles are excited. The Jews rejected it. And the Gentiles are happy to play a part. And so Paul is now shifting his ministry. He's cleaning the dust off his boots. He's saying, we brought the gospel to you first, and now we're going to move on. Because God has, as it says, appointed people to believe. So he's going to them. He's moved them to the Gentiles. And so what I want to ask us as we close out here, I'm going to go ahead and have the band come on up. As we close out here, my question for us is, first and foremost, do you know the narrative of our history? I just read a lot of it. That's the history of the Old Testament. But at the same time, do you know your history do you know your story of how Jesus has orchestrated you being brought into the family of God? For me, it's very simple. My parents, I was born in Nashville, Tennessee. For the first seven years of my life, I was living in, in a small um, kind of neighborhood on the north side of Nashville. And then my family in 1994 moved to White House, Tennessee, a rural tobacco town. Like 3,000 people were there when, I, when we first moved there. And then next door to us, this was now when I was in, I moved there in second grade. When I was in seventh grade, next door to us, God moved in a family that were believers. And when I was in seventh grade, God orchestrated a fifth grader to have a conversation with me about the gospel of Jesus Christ. A fifth grader, 10 years old. Which again is why we value Little District. Training children to know Jesus. To know his story. To know the gospel. So much so that a 10 year old can share the gospel with a 12 year old. That would allow me to be able to believe. And receive forgiveness of sins. That's my story. That's how I was able to be introduced to Jesus. Do you know your story? Do you know how you came to know Christ? And how that fits within the overall narrative of God's story of redemption. Sharing the gospel with other people. Telling them that you're literally just a, a person within the greater history of God spreading his glory over all the earth as the waters cover the sea as Habakkuk 2.14 says. God is spreading his glory. That doesn't mean that he's just beautifying flowers and buildings and great architecture and beautiful mountains and sea and sunsets. Yes, that is God's glory, but that's still a broken fraction of what God's glory is. God's glory is people coming to know Jesus and throwing off the old self, coming into the new self, understanding our identity in the gospel so that we are more loving, more joyful, more patient, more kind, more gentle, more, we have, we're exercising greater self-control, we're 
producing rules of life that hinder around or, or centralize around the gospel of Jesus Christ, that our lives are all about him and nothing else. That's God's glory being spread over the earth. And that's what we want to give ourselves over to and surrender ourselves to in this mission of the gospel being spread through the book of Acts does not end in chapter 28. Acts represents 30 years. 30 years of gospel advancement that from there can be traced for the next 2,000 years to us today. If you want to see the timeline, I can email it to you. So it doesn't stop. It, this isn't us just looking back at these great saints. We are saints that God has empowered to share the message of Jesus Christ. To share our story of hope. And there are going to be people who reject it and hate you for it. And there are going to be people who receive you and will forever love you for it. I'm willing to have people hate me for it for the sake of having some people who will love me for it. And not just like to love me for it, but to come to know Christ, to have ultimate satisfaction. So as we enter into a time of communion, we come to communion because again, this is a mission. This is a ministry. We are equipping the saints for the work of ministry. We are equipping you to share your story, the gospel with those who are around you. It's very easy as Americans to kind of take it on and say, I can do this. As Isaiah said, here I am, send me, Lord. It's easy for us to kind of raise those banners and take it into our own abilities. But again, the gospel is very clear that God empowers us with his strength, his might. David had no right going in against Goliath based on status, stature, based on ability. But God empowered him to be able to do something that was impossible. God empowers us to be able to do a ministry that is seemingly impossible. But yet he still called us to that. Because the way that he made it possible is the work of Jesus Christ. Him living the perfect life that you could not live. Him dying the death that you deserved. And then him raising to a new life. Guaranteeing for us a raising to a new life. A new identity in Him. So we worship Him through communion. We thank Jesus for His sacrifice on our behalf. That we did not have to break our bodies. That we did not have to shed our blood because of our sin. But that Jesus, He who knew no sin, became sin so that you and I might become His righteousness. Communion is us remembering the great exchange of Christ becoming us so that we might become Him. He became unrighteous so that we might become righteous. So we thank Him for what He's done. We worship Him. We remember this sacrifice. And we do it every day or every single Sunday because... It is the fuel. It is what binds us as a church. It is the power that we live by. The gospel.
the gospel. So let's worship in this time of breaking the bread that represents the body of Christ being broken. And let's partake of the, the juice that represent, represents the blood of Jesus being shed on our behalf. Let's remember his sacrifice. Let's stand and let's partake of communion together. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at